Research by the Kapoor Center shows that in Silicon Valley, men constitute 70% of the workforce. Asian and white women comprise a combined 26% of the professional workforce, while Black, Latinx, and Native American or Alaska Native women each constitute 2% or less. It goes further to say that among all women employed in computer and information science occupations, 56% are white women. 32% Asian women, 7% Black women, and 5% are Latinx women. While women currently make up roughly half of the overall workforce, they are just 35% of the technology workforce. Women of color currently constitute 18% of the overall population, but 39% of the female-identified population in the United States. And amazingly enough, by 2060, women of color will comprise the majority. It literally took me two years and still no jobs to speak of out of that. Once I hit the Bay Area, it took me six months. That's Dede Tetsubayashi. You may hear us refer to her as Orchid in some of the conversations we have today. That's because we were unsure at the time if she wanted to reveal her identity. I was born in Togo in West Africa and um, raised in Flint, Michigan and Ithaca, New York and spent a lot of my time growing up between countries and between cultures and between languages. A lot of my time growing up was trying to figure out where I belonged, um, how technology would play into keeping me connected to the various parts of me floating around the world and my family and my love of computers, computer graphics and design and also human behavior led me down the path of getting a degree in computer science and eventually in cultural anthropology. We met Dede a year ago and learned about her two and a half years of job searching for a senior level product management role. I'm not a junior. I'm not an entry level applicant. Two and a half years. Two and a half years is more than the average tenure of an employee at the top tech companies in Silicon Valley. I'm a black woman in technology. Like, I need to have these credentials to be able to compete with the high school graduate white guy who got an internship, you know, at IBM or Microsoft or Google. Now you might think, what was she doing? Was she searching for the perfect gig? Or just being really picky and passive? No. Dede, a senior level professional, was actively job searching, hired several career coaches, and resume writers, and was unable to secure a position at her level and value. I don't think most people are aware that they are being biased because they don't make up the population of people who experience bias on a daily basis. She was rejected countless times, and we want to understand why. What happened? Welcome to the Human Inclusive Podcast, where we curate stories that amplify diverse populations. I'm Leah. I use she, her. I'm Christopher. He, him. It's interesting, actually, because I started with tech and left tech and then came back. My bachelor's degree is in computer science, and I didn't have the traditional, I guess, exposure to programming or being an engineer as a lot of my classmates did. It took me around the world, actually, that love of technology and love of human behavior. I kind of fell into product management as I was doing my master's and PhD research in Japan. 
And having had family that was spread across the world, the way that, of course, the easiest way that we kept in touch was through mobile technology. And so I was interested in finding out whether people around the world, how they use mobile technology to stay in touch, and then also how they see the world based on the type of technology that's available to them. And for me, product was a place to see that because when you build a product, you're supposed to be building it for either a very particular demographic group or a larger demographic group, a particular market. And if you don't understand them, if you don't understand what their needs are, you're not going to have a good product. And I see and have always seen a huge gap between the products that we build in tech and then the people that we're building for. The voice of the, pe the people that we're building for hasn't been included. And so I spent the last few years um, in my professional life basically bringing in the voice of the user to companies, getting them to understand who they're building for, why they're building for those people, why they need to make a relationship rather than just marketing or building something and then saying, oh, this is for you, you should use it, and then not understanding why they don't and why it's not relevant. There's a ton of backlash right now around diversifying teams, arguing that we're lowering the bar of standards and that people would be at the table if they were qualified. The other side of the argument raises barriers to entry as the culprit, with bias and proxies playing a role. So which is it? We want to know why does a hiring process favor some groups over others if the qualifications are there? Where's the breakdown in hiring? We sought help from two DEI experts to better understand what might be happening for folks similar to Dayday. There are so many different variables within the context of this scenario that could have played in that we can never exactly pinpoint which particular mm -hmm. one caused the problem. And most likely there was actually some intersectionality issues. So we probably had converging identities that are marginalized, uh, particularly in the tech field, that created the obstacles for people to be able to you know, consider her for that position. This is Dr. Tiffany Jana. Her company, TMI Consulting, helps organizations build cohesive, accountable, diverse, inclusive, and equitable workplaces. They offer a full suite of services ranging from org-wide assessments and strategic planning to keynote and employee trainings. She is going to work with us to parse through Dayday's job search. I believe that particularly in the context of the workplace, every human being should be able to make a living, support themselves, take care of their families, and also be happy and healthy and joyful about where they are. So creating healthy, equitable workplaces and communities became more of a vocation and a calling than, than even a career. We will explore the challenges that companies have with biases despite good intentions and the impact it has on individual job seekers at all stages of their career. Dede has 16 years of experience in various technology roles and organizations from software engineer through product direction. It took her two and a half years to secure a position that recognized the value she brings to a team. Her story isn't unique. Of course, I'm always saddened when I hear these stories because we do want people to be given equal opportunity. My daughter and I do a lot of work trying to help people understand the concept of leveling the playing field. But when that happens, when things like this happen and people cannot even get their foot in the door, what we recognize is that one of the major problems is that 
people tend to want to hire people who are just like them. That is Dr. Deborah Egerton. She's a psychotherapist and the founder of Trinity Transition Consultants, a DEI transition company that works to energize and engage the workplace through empowering individuals with knowledge, awareness, and skills to reconnect on a human level. She's been working in the DNI space for 25 years. And so what often happens is a, a female candidate, a person that comes from a different ethnic background, um, a person who is not someone that they have mentored to be exactly the way they are, that maybe doesn't look exactly the way they look, and who brings a different perspective, that's not always welcomed in the workplace. And one of the saddest things about it is that it's a blind spot. It's a blind spot for people because we've learned a lot about how diverse teams make wonderful, wonderful, innovative, new, fresh, creative outcomes. But without the awareness of how important it is to create a diverse team, you end up with these situations where people who would be absolutely hands down wonderful candidates well-qualified for the positions, can't even get a foot in the door. Fun fact about them, Dr. Jana did what most children do. She followed in her mom, Dr. Egerton's, footsteps. They approach the conversation through two different lenses. Dr. Egerton has her background in psychology to focus on behavior and human connection. Dr. Jana uses a more pragmatic approach, using skills and tools that can be used to teach organizations how to mitigate diversity at all levels from individual contributor to executive. It's really cool we were able to get time with this dynamic duo to examine Dede's recount of her experience as a woman of color in the hiring process. Let's go back to Dede though and hear what she's encountered in her job search. The first barrier that I found and didn't even realize until two years into the search was that I was looking internationally. I wasn't located either in Southern California or in the Bay Area or wherever those jobs were posted. I wasn't on the ground. And when I reached out to recruiters, they were interested in me and interested in talking, finding out what I could provide. And they thought I had a, a great, strong background for the client, but I wasn't local and part of their hesitation was that they didn't know whether I was an American citizen returning to the U.S., whether I was in need of visa sponsorship, or whether product and technology outside of the U.S. was similar. Um, and I couldn't understand why they would think it'd be dissimilar. What I decided to do was actually take a step back. Instead of convincing them that I was the right one for the job, I started doing more informational interviews and I stopped reaching out to recruiters because they weren't willing to pass my credentials around. They weren't willing to contact those companies on my behalf. So then I had to do that work myself. So I started reaching out to people in my network and finding out whether they were hiring in their companies, whether they knew anyone who was a product manager, to find out more about their career trajectory in the U.S., in tech, and specifically in the Bay Area. But what I kept finding out was I landed interviews on my own. I didn't have any issues with that. And I'd go through several stages of the interview process 
but I'd always get the same feedback if I got feedback when they decided not to move on with my candidacy. And that feedback fell into two categories, that I didn't have enough experience or that I wasn't technical enough. And a few times I actually spoke to the team that was looking to hire, interviewed with them, and then they gave me a referral to get into their system. But then the hiring manager or the recruiter would be like, well, you're not a good match for this role, despite what the team actually already thought. So yeah, I experienced a lot of issues getting through to the team itself. Once I got to the team, my interview panels were mainly young white males in their 20s, younger Asian women. If there were women included, the majority would be maybe within an interview panel of five people, let's say, one of them would be a white woman or an Asian woman, but the, re the remaining would be white men. It's interesting to hear from Day Day because it makes me wonder, did they just not grasp her technical experience? Did she not communicate or demonstrate it well enough? There just seems to be some gaping hole from her initial connection with the hiring team to her continually faced rejection. Yeah, you're right. You know, ultimately, it seems like there was very little to no representation of those whom she may have had a shared experience with. So there's got to be some sort of expectation that's creeping in in some of these processes. Let's hear a little bit more about how she fared in the technical components of the interview. Most of the feedback that I found out for the companies that said I wasn't experienced enough, they would say something of a variant degree, such as you're not experienced enough in terms of having managed enough people, or you don't have enough experience with enterprise. And then I'd follow up seeing enterprise applications, enterprises, enterprise like businesses, like what types of enterprises are you talking about? And any type of enterprise you're talking about, I can give you examples for how I actually have that experience. I want to ask a question for a second. Are you saying that these are interviews that you had when you were overseas and you yes. were talking to people? Okay. Yeah. But that didn't change once I got to the Bay Area either. Most of the places don't. It seems they don't provide feedback because they don't want to be sued because they know that they're being discriminatory in their practices. You know, I never thought about it like that. Like, that's an interesting way of wording it just because, like, I know why, obviously, like, people or companies are careful of what they say in the case that someone could spin it something a certain way. But mm -hmm. the way you just said it, is a very interesting way to think about it. I think we should talk about that because it didn't occur to me for the longest time, like why can't you provide feedback, like actionable feedback on what it is that you want me to improve on or where it is that I'm lacking or where you see gaps in terms of either my communication, my ability to do work for your company, to be able to understand engineers and to be able to provide, to be the liaison between engineering, design, and stakeholders, like external stakeholders. These are the things that are written in the job description. And I don't apply to any job unless I meet 100% of those requirements. So then to go into the interview, to feel like I'm acing the interview, and then to turn around and get an email saying, thanks, but we're not proceeding, we're going with someone with more experience, it's really frustrating because it doesn't tell me what it is that you're actually looking for. There's a, there's a huge gap between what it is you're looking for and what you've written down in terms of what you're looking for. After diving a little deeper with Day Day, 
we came around to the point that organizations may think they have a great process, but because it was designed by those who make up the majority of the company, it's difficult to see how their behavior is detrimental to those in the minority. I would have to say I don't think that they knew they were being discriminatory or racist. I believe what is happening is there are several gateways that you need to go through. There's a process, and this process is considered the one and only way to get good candidates. And it consists of someone high enough referring you someone high enough in the company who's going to keep an eye on who's going to keep an eye out for you through the candidate process through the recruitment process and check up with recruiting and HR and the team to finally make sure that you get to where you need to be in smaller organizations there are fewer roadblocks I guess or gateways to go through but in larger organizations there are these gateways and I don't think most people are aware that they are being biased because they don't make up the population of people who experience bias on a daily basis. And maybe no one is outwardly saying they don't want to hire a Black woman, but there have been several studies over the last century which show the stereotypes behind an assumed intelligence of Blacks compared to whites. And actually, there's a report from 2018 by Dupree and Fisk that alludes that unconscious bias and microaggressions build upon these low-competence stereotypes perpetuated by white groups, especially with liberals. So conscious or unconsciously, it's a reality that research has shown us. Dr. Egerton said earlier that people hire those who reflect their own lived experiences. That's one place where bias is happening. Let's hear some additional comments from Dr. Egerton and Dr. Jana about hiring the best candidate and how intersectionality might play in. The real problem and challenge with this is that people are so blind to it. They don't have a recognition of uh, what they're doing. They don't see, you'll get, you'll get resistance and pushback from people who will say, we're really just hiring the best candidate. We're hiring the best candidate for the job. We don't want, you know, we don't want anyone to think that we're not trying to bring in diversity, but what we're doing is we're hiring the best candidate for the job. When you begin to dissect that and you go a little deeper into who is the best candidate for the job, what we find is that people are looking for mini-me's. They're looking for people who are like them. They're looking for people that either they have mentored or that when they walk through the door and they sit there on those interview panels, you can actually see from the body language, from the, the, the smiles and the nodding, when people are just sort of reflecting back to another human being what they want to hear, what they want to see, they're much more likely to have a more positive reaction and response to that person. So the scores go up. I mean, the interesting thing is that there are so many different variables within the context of this scenario that could have played in that we can never exactly pinpoint which particular one caused the problem. And most likely there was actually some intersectionality issues. So we probably had converging identities that are you know marginalized uh, particularly in the tech field that 
created the obstacles for people to be able to consider her for that position. So, you know, whether you have things as simple as an ethnic sounding name or an unusual sounding name, anything that indicates that you are from a different nation, particularly if it is a, a, you know, a nation of color or something that has a, a politicized identity. Um, and then obviously, you know, Orchid is also female. Uh, that creates challenges in the tech sphere uh, as, you know, as well as other things. So we've got multiple converging identities and we know, I mean, there've been study after study after study, even in the sciences, like Yale did a study in particular where they presented male and female uh, resumes that were absolutely identical. People each received one of the resumes and they had to rank the competency of the individual, how much a starting salary would be and whether or not they would hire them and you already know what happened. The males with the identical resumes received higher starting salary, more competency ratings, and were more likely to be hired, just the only, and the only difference being gender. So in this situation, as much as tech companies and lots of other industries talk about wanting diversity and wanting to make these hires and wanting to have more women in leadership, Actually making that happen takes a concerted effort and often some kind of an initiative and a commitment to making it happen. Because at the end of the day, what Dr. Eggerson, aka mom, said is true. If people don't see similarities with themselves, it makes them far less likely to embrace that candidate. But then if we have these converging identities that are creating some of the challenges that are in this individual experienced throughout her process where do we start identifying what needs to change or what action steps we can do in order to open up the opportunities for these individuals for all people so that is the so that that's actually the subject of what is it my second book erase institutional bias how to create systemic how to create systemic change for organizational inclusion so if you have an organization that has identified okay we can tell by the data we can tell by looking at the leadership or looking at salaries, you know, men and women aren't making the same pay for the same job, or our leadership looks homogeneous in one way or another, we have to identify what the challenge is and what bias might be at play and be willing to kind of break down that system and look for what are the things that are, that are sort of replicating this bias or reinforcing this bias over time. So it, it really needs to be a concerted effort because our culture allows us to keep reinforcing these same patterns over and over and over again. So someone has to identify it, they have to name it, and then take a, a systematic series of steps to make different choices over time. The amount of work that needs to be done to see a shift in hiring practice seems overwhelming at times. How does an executive justify the investment in these change practices when their responsibility is revenue and growth? We know it's more than a feel-good practice, but when you listen to case after case of companies that are facing discrimination lawsuits or continually hiring people that reflect their leadership teams, advancing diversity seems like an uphill battle. It's disheartening. I hear you, and it reminds me of Day-Day's perspective to that overwhelming feeling. I guess I feel dismal about the state of the tech industry. Why stay? Why, why continue to pound the pavement and go after that job and try to find the position that you were originally seeking if if you're just getting the door shut in your face and being told that you don't belong there. Because I refuse to submit. I refuse. It's taken me a bit of um, heartache and, and soul searching to get here. And 
it's still, I don't know. I'm, I don't know if it's the right thing, but I refuse to let someone else dictate who I am, where I should be, what my powers are, what, what I'm able to provide to the world. I know what I can give and I've been giving it. And it's just a matter of finding the right place that's going to see that. What feels like a blow to yourself isn't a blow to yourself. And I've been taking a lot of it as a blow to myself and to my ego and, and questioning my worth and having to relearn to not question my, my worth and to sit with myself and to reevaluate what it is that I want to achieve, whether it's worth it to keep going through and to push through. But being able to document that and show other people that this is reality. This is what we're going through on a daily basis. Like, if we don't record it, if we don't televise it, right, who's going to be able to, to be like, oh, yeah, I see, like, I'm going through the same thing. We won't be able to have the same rallying force to drive change. She's going through heartache, soul searching, taking care of her family. She's giving it her all and refuses to submit. That's perseverance. I can't imagine it was easy to persist through all of that rejection she faced. Yeah, of course not. And everyone's not day-day, which is why we see a lot of attrition in the tech industry from those that are underrepresented. It's brutal. Continual rejection can have a major impact, not just on individuals, but we see it ripple out into an entire industry or workforce. Dr. Egerton gives us a bit more perspective on the impact this type of rejection can have on an individual, as well as the impact it can have on the workforce. For some people, they actually get out of an industry. They will walk away from uh, their sort of chosen career path because it's just too harsh. It's just too hard. There is only but so much disappointment and disapproval that a human being can take in. I mean, you know, we, we would like to say that we have Teflon souls, but sometimes we have Velcro souls. And all of these things come in and we, we take this toxic rejection. And as a result of taking rejection in over and over again, sometimes people come to the conclusion, well, maybe I just need to, to try another line of work. We are hurting our workforce by not hiring these qualified, capable women of color. Not just because we're not hiring them, but because we're not cultivating them once they enter the workplace. Do you think we have a starting point after all of this? Like, do you have a good grasp on where to focus first if we are making changes in an organization? Do we start with the people we have? Or do we start by trying to introduce new people into the fold? Yeah, let's talk about that. Should companies be hiring for diversity or should they focus on inclusion? I would say inclusion needs to happen first. And the, the metaphor that I like to use is you have to, you basically have to have a strong enough container to hold the diversity. So the, the reason that we know that inclusion is better to start with inclusion than start with diversity is because you have countless accounts and stories about organizations that bring in diversity because they say we don't have enough diversity we need more people of color women whatever the demographics are and they bring them and then they leave okay you see mass exodus of the people because they're like you know what this place sucks for whatever reason it's not welcoming to me and i am out of here so you start with inclusion because you've got to you can create a culture of inclusion 
even with outwardly homogeneous, what looks like homogeneous aspects of diversity, because truth be known, there's diversity that's deeper than what you can see. And we need to be able to include that first before we start talking about lots and lots of visible diversity. So cultivating an environment where people are respected for who they are and they're invited to join the work and we are able to, you know, to listen and to respect and to have that kind of hardship and be able to deal with the challenges that come with adding diversity. Very important to start with inclusive behaviors. And while you cannot, as an organizational leader, mandate what people think or how people feel, you absolutely can mandate workplace behavior. And so you say, this is how we behave in our workplace. This is the experience that we want our employees and our colleagues to have. This is how people will be treated. So then when you add diversity, you're adding it into an environment that has learned to be welcoming, that has learned to be accepting, and that has accountability and practices that have been mandated in a good way. Becoming aware of the situation is only the beginning. Holding accountable to inclusion initiatives is tough. Making these paradigm shifts for any company is a rigorous process, as this dilemma is complex and unique. Managing it requires a concerted effort from everyone. What we know about diversity is that when you add diversity, you are going to increase conflict. I wish that I could say that you're gonna add diversity and everything is gonna be copacetic and you're just gonna get the epic bottom line and everyone's gonna get along and it'll be great and all of the creativity will just come. No, the creativity stems from the friction that's created when you take different worldviews, different perspectives, different socioeconomic classes and experiences, and you rub them up against each other, there is friction. And people need to be able to be comfortable enough in themselves and welcoming and inclusive enough to be able to handle that friction because that friction causes you to dig deeper and think more creatively as people challenge the norms and the customs and the expectations that have come to be the way we go about doing business. We'll take you back to Day Day. There has to be an end to her job search, right? Day Day finally got hired at WeWork, a global organization that brings communities together through shared spaces. They recognize the value of Day Day's experiences, both professional and lived, and decided to bring her aboard. One of the women that I met through Sister Circle, and she's also a member of Tech Ladies, she posted about a win for her job search. And she's a product manager. She's also interested in machine learning and artificial intelligence. And I sent her a message saying, I really appreciate you showing this or sharing this information with all of us. Congratulations on the win. And we started our relationship that way. And I shared that I'd been searching for a while and she'd heard of me because I posted probably once or twice before. And she was like, okay, well, I'm going to give back to you the coaching and mentoring that took that it took for me to land the job that I got. So wow. I want to pay it forward. And mm -hmm. so we scheduled a call once a week where we would practice these crazy ass product manager interview questions. And out of the blue, she got a message from someone, one of her coworkers in the past, um, looking for a product manager and at a company that wasn't even on my radar. I was using the space, but it just hadn't been on my radar. And she introduced me to him. We talked and the conversation went swimmingly well. I think we talked for about 45 minutes to an hour and a half or something wow. and got off the phone with him, talked to his boss and his boss is also amazing. And they brought me in without the recruiter. 
without the hiring manager. They were like, we want you. We seen your resume. This person speaks highly of you. So come on in and meet us. And they just walked away with basically here my credentials. And they're go. like, here, it's come on over. Like, <laughs> Oprah right style. Here. Yeah, that's awesome. You get a job. You get a job. Yeah. Yes. You get a job. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here's what I want to know. How was the interview process at WeWork different for Day Day? Was it some magical experience where things just happened to click? Was there some sort of aha moment like, oh, this is where all of the other companies went wrong? I think that's what's so remarkable about this conversation with Day Day was that it didn't seem different. That just further highlights the gaps in the hiring process. She didn't do anything significantly different in this interview. To start with, the moment that I had the offer, and I, I'll be honest, like I didn't feel any differently after that last interview. Like I was just like, okay, I'm gonna do this interview. I've met these people, they're really interesting. They seem warm and wonderful and open, and they're not trying to get me at a whiteboard to be like, oh, how many golf balls are gonna fit into the Eiffel Tower or something like that. So I was really excited about it, but I felt, after the last interview that I had done just as good of a job as I'd been doing in all my other interviews. Hmm. And I didn't want to get excited about a potential offer because every time I got excited, I felt like I jinxed myself. So I was like, okay, I'm going to take it easy. I'm just going to sit here for a bit and write down, you know, like my thoughts and, and use it for the next interview, whoever else I'm going to talk to after this. And they came back and they made me the offer. And I just like, I went home and I wanted to curl in bed and put the covers over my like head and be like, okay, I'm going to go sleep for forever because I'm justified. I know what I'm worth. And they were just like, yep, you're worth that. We're going to give it to you. No questions asked. Wow. And, really? That's and, awesome. And I was like, so I'm not crazy. I know my value. I know my worth. But why did it take as long as it did? A woman who brings in-depth experience launching products internationally combined with a deep study of computer science and anthropology should not have run up against the barriers that she did. It leaves me with so many question marks. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. And that's why we're doing this. It's helpful to get more visibility into what is actually happening and why these barriers continue to exist so we can make the changes. I definitely don't want us to minimize her experience by tying a little red bow around it, but I do want to say how lucky is WeWork and how fitting of a role for Day Day. Agreed. I mean, WeWork definitely lucked out with, with having Day Day as a contributing member of their workforce, and it's really incredible to see her step into that role. Each of us are in different places or scenario in our workplace, and we have to remember that there isn't one solution. Doctors Jonas and Egerton are essential to this conversation. In order to figure out how to tackle the diversity conundrum, it's imperative to look at where we came from and how we got here in the first place. Many of us are looking at our society, whether we're talking about the United States or talking about the whole wide world. Here in the United States, for instance, there's a lot of uh, inequity, a lot of injustice, a lot of you know disharmony, and people are wondering how it happened like how could we how could how could america be this way you know it's not the not the values that we that we sort of put out there and that we were founded on when actually everything that we're experiencing right now is the america of our own creation 
This was all created by design. There is nothing accidental about the inequity that has that is that is currently being experienced. So the approach that I am a proponent of in terms of metric-based accountability in terms of naming these things and disassembling the existing structure and looking for more objective solutions, that's all based in the fact that the, the, the systems and the bias that has been embedded in the systems from the bottom to the top in our nation and in our world were designed that way on purpose to privilege some demographics over others, whether it is a, a majority race or a, you know, a gender that happens to be in power or uh, the religion of the chosen people, whatever it is, these systems were designed to continue to reinforce existing power structures. So in my estimation, the only way to create a new way. We've tried all kinds of other ways. We've had nonprofits. We've had people working towards solutions for years and years and years. We've got to really break these things down to their tiny component parts and rebuild them more equitably. So how can organizations look inward and not make the, the same mistakes that so many others do as we've seen through Dayday's interview process and that many other candidates experience on a daily basis. In order to have an organization, a community, a school, a church that is truly outstanding and actually living the truth of being inclusive, people have to do some individual work and they've got to unpack some, sometimes a lifetime of things that they have locked up inside of themselves and didn't even know were there. How can companies begin to change how they look at their own people, their most important and expensive resources? We're absolutely interrupting the fabric of society when we don't take a deep look at what all of these individual wounds, you know, these microaggressions, these things that we are doing to people, how the individual creates the collective. And these individual hurts, and there are way too many of them, is creating this sort of collective tsunami of an effect on what we're doing to humanity. How do we hold ourselves accountable to see change? One of the reasons that these things are failing and that Silicon Valley, for instance, has been five years trying and not achieving anything is because they're probably not asking the right questions, for one not setting clear measurable goals and then if they have goals they're not creating actionable strategies and accountability for getting to those goals so that's the place that that i am so proud to occupy in the market is helping people ask the right questions create goals that make sense and there there is no silver bullet there's no panacea there's no i can't i can't say to you right now on this podcast oh my gosh this is all you need to do and then you can win diversity no the solution for creating a diverse and equitable and an inclusive workplace environment is as unique to each each culture each organization as the as an organization is to another like it, the, the 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 solutions have to be customized they have to be relevant Whatever it is that you define as that inclusive culture has to make sense within the context of what you do and what you produce and how you engage with your customers. These are deeply complex and, 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 and challenging questions, but they have to be asked. You have to set goals and then you've got to hold people accountable. We talked about before mandating behavior and saying, yeah, guess what, guys, this is how we're going to treat people in our organization. You have to be prepared to say, and if you don't, 
or if what you do flies in the face of the stated values and the inclusive vision that we've created, here's what's gonna happen to you. If you are exhibiting behaviors that are problematic to, to your diversity, equity, and inclusion values, it doesn't matter whether you just walked in the door, you're at the bottom of the organizational hierarchy, or you are the CEO. There's gotta be accountability across the board. And that's what people are afraid of. People aren't afraid yes. of, of having the diversity conversation and having a chief diversity officer and just doing the dog and pony show. They're afraid of accountability at the highest level. So the marriage of what Dr. Egerton is talking about, about the, the individual work, and, and I'm saying the metric-based accountability, that's what has to happen. Because if your executive leadership is not willing to really take on the work of caring for other people by looking at themselves, then a lot of this stuff is going to fall flat. There's a lot to take in from the conversation, but there are a few key points that we think are essential to highlight as you continue thinking about your role. Some people may be more motivated by the heart and understand that people interactions as well as human needs are number one priority. And as a result, those drive business success. When we can have these conversations, we can begin to reach people's you know, initially you can intellectualize it, but it always comes back to, did you really internalize it? Was there any value in that? Not just in the idea, but did you feel something? While other people think more pragmatically and need to see the ROI and overall impact on the business and its bottom line to understand the value in committing to inclusion initiatives. Well, I learn every time my mother speaks, so here was another opportunity for me. But as a CEO and, you know, as somebody who loves the ROI and the, you know, the bottom line, <laughs> the business case for everything, I think even for me, it, it was a good reminder to hear her talk about that, that head shift and that heart shift. I think that in the same way that other leaders are afraid to have the diversity and inclusion conversation because they're afraid that they're going to create racism or sexism where there wasn't any, I don't lead with the squishy stuff um, because you know I'm not the I'm not the squishiest most emotionally available person, and I don't think that that's really going to open up doors or 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 sell business, quite frankly. But at the end of the day, I do this because of human hearts. I do this because of human well-being, so I feel like I can be more intentional about, about, about naming that heart shift and really making more room for the emotional component as well as the business case for diversity. Bottom line, there are many ways to approach the dilemma. Being vulnerable isn't easy, and putting yourself out there to encourage or spark this type of change is difficult, and it takes a lot of courage. I've learned today that I guess I can be brave <laughs> and I can, I can share a little bit about what I've gone through and I'm willing to share more. And I didn't realize that until after speaking to the two of you. And taking on the burden to do this work requires the right mindset. No one can do it alone. It takes hard work, energy, and resources. Celebrate your successes and wins. Learn from sticky situations and obstacles. It is so important that we recognize that because we have an America of our own making, what gives anyone the right or 
the feeling that they can opt out now and not do the tough work that we all need to do in order to get America to be a more equitable place. We as individuals create a collective whole for family, business, community, society. We have the power to impact our world with every decision that we take. That's why every individual must be intentional with their actions. Sometimes someone will begin to open just a little bit more. And every time, if I get them to open just a little bit, there can be a, a blossoming that starts to happen that is a beautiful thing that really reveals the truth of what we're all trying to get to. So um, having these conversations encourages me. I'm taking that away. So thank you so very much. We are so thankful to have Day Day, Dr. Jana, and Dr. Egerton for this episode. If you would like more information on how to find the women featured in this episode, please take a look at our show notes. Join us next episode for another round of The Doctors. In that episode, we will talk through harassment in the workplace. Stay tuned. We wouldn't have been able to kick this season off without our committed human inclusive listening circle. You all have provided us with valuable feedback and ideas throughout the development of this podcast. So thank you. Special thanks to our trusted advisor, Mark D. Hans, who helps us think differently, creatively, and brings our ideas to life. Follow him on Instagram at Mark D. Hans, that's spelled M-A-R-C-D-H-A-N-S. Music and sound effects are composed and produced by Justin Plot Ramos. You can find him on Instagram at Plot Ramos, spelled P-L-A-T-R-A-M-O-S. Human Inclusive is produced by Christopher Guest and Leah James. Thanks to Dante32, a production company that assists new podcasters like us to get off the ground with editing and post-production of the episodes in this season. Thank you for listening to Human Inclusive. We'll catch you next time.